We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to the Transformative Principle Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Al Kingsley on the program. He has spent the last 30 years in the EdTech space and 20 of those as a school trustee and governor. He is co-chairman of the Workstream 4 at the Foundation for Educational Development, an organization developing a framework for long-term vision and sustainable planning in England. Al is also the group CEO of NetSupport Limited, an internationally acclaimed EdTech vendor. As a firm supporter of lifelong learning, he is also a regional apprenticeship ambassador and chair of the Employment Employment and Skills Board for his region's combined authority. As an active writer about all things EdTech, Al is a member of the Forbes Technology Council and sits on the advisory council for the Foundation for Education Development. He authored a book called My Secret EdTech Diary, released in July 2021, that is a roadmap to a new way of thinking about technology and education. And we're going to talk about some of that today, but not much of that, because we're going to talk about some other things. So, Al, welcome to Transformative Principle. Happy to have you here. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Well, um, I'm excited to talk with you today, because we're going to talk about high-stakes testing, which is one of my uh, favorite and most hated topics ever <laughs> so oh how exciting <laughs> yes so i think that this this will be good um so let's first talk about education in the uk is the same but different from education in the united states which is also the same but different so tell us a little bit about how things are a little bit different in the uk versus the united states as you probably know uk is certainly better than i do yeah i mean there's, there's many similarities, frankly, in most education systems around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the UK system, we have, and it's changed over the last 
couple of decades. But in essence, our education system has gone through a transformation. So previously, all of our schools were what were referred to as local authority schools, state based schools in the national education system. Uh, and we introduced uh, an academization program, which basically brings together lots of schools to form in essence, like a school district, but under independent uh, management running of those schools, reporting to a regional schools commissioner. So we kind of have two parallel tracks of schools, those run by our local authorities and those run by independent academies. And I suppose like every region, there's a third stream, which are the independent, the private fees paying schools that sit in the mix as well. Um, and typically we have our references of primary and secondary. So children for the first seven years of their education are in a primary school and then move to a secondary. Not exclusively, because there are some that operate a three tier system just to keep things interesting for everybody else. When it comes to thinking about performance, we tend to have two checkpoints in our primary provision. Uh, so at the end of the third year of education, year two and then year six, um, we have a, another set. And, and that's really to gauge those core levels of attainment. And the year six measures are what are often used by children when they move into a secondary school to set that baseline of expectation of where they'll progress. Now, given tonight's conversation, you'll be you'll be shocked to hear that sometimes there's there's debate about those two measures because the first checkpoint halfway through a child's primary journey is done on internal assessment, and the second checkpoint is done on external assessment. So, depending on schools and children, sometimes there can be a bit of debate that maybe schools um, are a bit harsh on the internal assessments to show greater progress before the external assessments or vice versa. To, to make sure I understand, the, um, the internal assessment is something that is done within the school and the external is done something outside of the school. Explain that a little bit more. So, so internal assessment is very much about teacher-based assessments based on what they've seen the child achieve within the classroom. Um, at the end of their primary journey, the external assessment is undertaking what we refer to as SATs, but exams, formal assessments that are marked and moderated externally. So like all things, you know, we're often at a very simplistic level and we'll unpick a bit more. We kind of judge the, the merits based on how much progress a child makes. So, you know, if you judge them pretty harsh at the midpoint, it's easier to make progress growth. Now, I'm, I'm using that as an example to perhaps exaggerate for effect, because like in every system, most schools operate exactly the way it was intended with best will yeah. and best practice. But there's just sometimes it's open to dispute then, isn't it? And that's the challenge with systems. When we move to our senior schools, our secondary schools, ultimately our children progress through and the only real measures become their, what we refer to as GCSEs. Children take their, their formal external exams aged 16 um, in a, a range of subjects. And as well as getting grades, now we have two special measures that are produced, which are linked to school league tables. So one is attainment eight, which is really uh, the level of attainment, the grades children achieve based on a comparator against all other children in the country. And one is progress eight, which is how much progress has a child made from that starting point when they arrived. So see our earlier point about that first external exam in year six through to when they took their, their, you know, their external exams age 16. And typically we're expecting a child to make three whole grade jumps in progress over that period of time. And then two years later, they take their final exams before they head off to college or university, which we call A-levels. And again, they are a, you know, an end of period summative assessment, an external examination they sit, and then off they go to 
whatever the next step is in their learning journey and life choice, whether it's the workplace, university, and so on. So um, let me ask another clarifying question hmm. here, because in the United States, kids take exams at the end of each year, uh, every grade level, starting in third grade, going up through uh, typically 10th grade. Some do 11th and 12th, but mostly it's third through 10th grade, which um, is year four through 11, I believe, four, mm. uh, compared to how you guys name yours. So are there no um, end of year assessments um, at yes, the yearly level? Yes, there are, but they're, they're purely internal. So that's okay. what schools are using to monitor. And, and as we get closer to the, the formal external exams, there'll be the mock exams, the practice papers. And throughout the year, there will be different checkpoints terminally where staff will be taking assessment points based on either small, short, um, you know, formative tests or based on what they've tracked during the term as well. Um, so we kind of have those key external markers, shall we say, rather than the fact there's an on ongoing internal process of assessment. Yes, so we have ongoing internal processes uh, throughout a child's education from kindergarten through 12th grade. That's yeah. always happening. Um, but then for us, those external measures are done yearly and they are mandated by each state. So each state has their own different way of of doing it, though they're all pretty much similar at this point. And, yeah. and there's not a, t a ton of difference. So th the reason why we're, we're talking through all this is to say, are these things worthwhile and meaningful and are they giving us the information that we need so is there anything else we need to talk about before we move on to that question well i think it's more about what is the purpose and the outcome of those measures now clearly we know internal monitoring staff taking assessment points of a child's progress allows the member of staff to shape where there may be gaps in learning areas to revisit and particularly if we can see gaps across a particular whole cohort we can start to talk about areas where we need to revisit parts of the curriculum there tends to be in my view and i, and I for the purpose of this conversation I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to be a little bit more black and white or contentious than perhaps i need mm -hmm. to be the question is when when it's an external measure it only serves two purposes, in my view. You know, one is a, fi a final marker or certificate for a student's achievement, and we can debate the merits of the validity of that, that mm -hmm. assessment, or it's because we want an external measure to which we can hold a school to account. That's me really simplifying it down. And the challenge is, and we see it in our schools, when we think about the, the period coming up to our, if you like, our standardized testing that's for external validation, a large part of our time is spent teaching for the test. It's about practicing the format of taking tests, building student confidence taking the tests, revisiting the subjects for the test. And I guess like all things, the, the balancing point is how much time do we spend teaching for the test versus that time could be spent teaching, learning and skills and a broader curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so it's that kind of point where, you know, where this conversation comes where we could probably sit back for the next three or four hours and talk about this Jethro you know but where this really kind of unpicks then is you know in in the UK we end up with schools publishing their grades they get put on the the local news for all the schools in the region and national league tables and, and the question has to be what do we hope to achieve by that now there's a really good rebuff argument straight away which is because parents want choice I want to send my child to the best school uh, and it's hard to argue against that at a simplistic level because as a parent, yes, I wanted to know my child was going to a good school. But then the measure is, 
are those results where they are in terms of attainment because the school were really bad at teaching a broad and balanced education? Was it a particularly challenging cohort in that particular year? Uh, were there other factors that actually meant that that cohort may have got lower grades than other schools in the area, but actually performed quite well based on their baseline when they joined the school? And then we kind of think, well, if we see a school sits near the bottom, how does that help strive improvement? Well, we can have the message of, hey, you need to improve and do more, but actually it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because actually what we see, we have an extra layer in the UK where we have our external inspections when the inspectors turn up and do their deep dive of a school's performance and give you a rating. Are you outstanding, good, requires improvement and so on. But actually, if you get a badge, which is not a particularly good badge, requires improvement, actually one of the hardest things is to then recruit staff to come and teach your school because staff don't want to come to a school that's shown to be, you know, in, in need of improvement or in challenge. They want to move to a good school. Many staff do. I shouldn't use a uh, an all all size fits, you know, <laughs> on that on that measure. But actually, that badge can sometimes not actually facilitate improvement at all. It can actually hinder. So let's and, let's pause yeah. there for just a second because I think you said a couple important things. So we the external assessment served two measures. You mentioned that we say that this kid completed something, therefore they can move on to the next thing or hold accountability. Now, Nick Fisher, who I've had on the podcast, said that test scores are legislatively convenient because they allow the the legislators, the governing body, to say whether or not a school was good or bad or whatever, as you're talking about right now. And so we judge the school based on the score, but we forget about all those other things that make up what the school is and whether or not it's good. Now, here in the United States, Every house you look at buying has at the bottom of the of the house listing the schools yeah. that are in the area and how good or bad they are. And, and that is almost purely measured on their test scores and not anything else about the school. Because again, it's convenient to be able to say this score has 90% or 50% of its students who are successful on the end of year exams. Yeah, and I would use that analogy and push it back the other way, Jethro. And again, I'm, I'm using slightly extreme for the purpose of us having our conversation. In the same analogy, I would say, so would you choose the right house to buy simply by a listing of the number of rooms and size of it? Or would you also place value on its view and its surrounding area and the accessibility of roads? Because one of the biggest debates at the moment is whether, and this doesn't matter whether we're looking in the US perspective or internationally, things like the PISA me measures, is whether our measure of a successful education is acquisition of knowledge or whether our measure of a successful education is acquisition of knowledge, of course, to provide context, but also acquisition of skills, of social independence um, of you know developing our own robustness our sense of purpose our inquisitiveness to learn there are so many other areas that come under that sense of empowering a young person to flourish in the future and yes you're absolutely right some of these things become quite intangible it's a bit like saying is this school doing really well because it's retaining all of its staff well increasingly that's a real challenge in schools losing quality staff so when we look at our strategic plan we look at staff retention as being something that's really important but we're always naturally programmed in education when we measure a school's success to to focus in on 
academic attainment as opposed to that plus what about well-being what about social emotional mental health of our learners what about the breadth of curriculum when I think back to my school days, and I don't think I'm particularly unique, um, I don't particularly remember my, my math or English classes or my grade papers, but I do remember drama, music, sports, other activities, field trips where I went exploring with the school or stayed away from home for the first time. Now, those alone are not going to equip me for an adult life and moving forward, but they absolutely are part of building and developing a love of learning and being inquisitive and developing more. And then we've got this extra bit, which is where PISA now are starting to look and think we need to start to shift the dial, which is actually we don't get to pick the rules in education. It's convenient from a government perspective, but the workplace has shifted significantly, particularly the last two years. And our job is to educate young people for the future workplace so they can contribute to society be fulfilled and so on now if the workplace is suddenly moving to actually there's a greater waiting now on digital skills communication skills empathy all the different things that allow us to engage effectively with our peers in the workplace whether it's to research and inspire the next generation to innovate within the companies in technology all those skills sit in addition to just simply having a base acquisition of knowledge. And so those have to fit into what a school needs to teach. And many schools do. But my point about when we focus in on the, the those kind of the, the key testing is that doesn't really get much weighting, if any. And so where I would might argue to make the, the, the debate really simple, you know, those kind of real high stakes tests should go. What I really mean is, um, actually, they shouldn't count for everything. There's actually much more to that. And there have been in the, in the UK qualifications for children post-16, where rather than study for two years and take those external exams at the end and get a certificate with a grade, you would actually do project work and each piece of the project work would be marked and it would count in total during those two years for 70% of your score, followed by an exam at the end that counted for 30%. And in essence, all our conversation at the moment is about inclusivity, accessibility for all our learners, recognising that people and children learn in different ways. And that when we come to testing success in a chosen subject, there's no flexibility whatsoever. And I believe there should be. So rather than saying we shouldn't have those assessments, because, of course, we need to find out some way of evidencing progress and, and knowledge being retained, not just for a week, but actually becoming embedded. And we want to measure that teachers are hopefully covering the right content and subjects in their lessons. It's really about shifting that balance to, well, now surely we want to find other ways to capture a child's learning journey, not just the knowledge retention. Yeah, and, and knowledge retention is important, but knowledge, knowledge application, I think, is even more important. And being able to assess that, for example, through projects or other activities or interactions one-on-one, -on -one, I think is way more valuable than, you know, just being able to recall information. And so I see this on a, on a spectrum of information is out there and knowledge is having that information in your mind, but wisdom is applying that knowledge to your life and what you're doing. And because life has become so much more collaborative in so many professions, um, the idea of you being the sole source of information as we teach in school 
is not really as valuable as it may have been in the past because you can you can look things up so quickly you can have resources at the tips of your fingers to to get the information and it's not as needed in all areas as it was before though there are still areas where you have to have that information i don't want my doctor for example doing surgery exactly. and looking up in the textbook which which one's the spleen again let me let me get a picture of that that's just not gonna work yeah it's all about the balance isn't it i mean i because I, 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 there's an interesting TED talk from a few years ago. Shigata Mitra was doing a, a TED talk and about a, how children will, will find it. It was a hole in the wall project with a computer and a wall in India and how young children with no education or experience, given enough time, figured it out. But the, the start of the talk was basically knowledge is dead. In other words, in the matter of the last 15 years, we've developed technology that means any knowledge we want, we can just go, hey, Siri, and we'll get the answer. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, in reality, no, it's not at all, because that bit of knowledge we talk about is what provides the context for you to then go and understand, find out more and start to validate challenge information. But, you know, I think it's like a young person. We can talk about our, our youngest learners. What's more important, being, you know, having read three different books or focusing on developing a love of learning? Now, clearly, we've got to equip children with the skills that facilitate learning, the reading, the writing, the, the, the numeracy, the literacy and so on. But we also at the same time measure some schools by the environment. You know, you, you like myself been into many schools and some schools inspire more than others that's probably a diplomatic way of saying it the <laughs> yes. space the environment that the people will inspire that love of learning and yet there's no measure for that in anything other than at the end of it of saying well what did this cohort achieve in their grades and every cohort is different but also what we don't want is just people that leave at the end of the exams period you know, completely disillusioned with education. Well, I've crossed the finish line. Now that's it. I'm never going to pick up a novel again in my life. We want people that actually are inspired to be lifelong learners, to always be inquisitive. And I also think over the last couple of years, you know, you've had all sorts of um, debates and disputes over political process over the last couple of years. <laughs> Here in the UK, we've had all sorts of debates and disputes about our place in Europe. But the, one of the common themes has been actually finding out what information is true and valid and where to find information and how to challenge it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And those are all skills that, again, I, I don't see being measured in that broader picture. So I don't think it really matters whether we're talking about your NAP, the kind of the, the annual measure, whether it's PISA that's being done, um, whether it's looking at other school systems. It reality is this thing about are we, because it's convenient, focusing on that measure that we can use to hold a stick over versus actually looking at what's best for the young people. And my argument to push back to challenge against it um, was if you look at some of the assessment outcomes, and you can absolutely do it from a US perspective. Um, and I was looking over the last 20 years for grade eight reading using the uh, National Assessment of Education Progress results data. Um, and what was interesting was for the period for the last 15 years, Pretty much every three-year measure, there was 15 to 16 jurisdictions in the US that were performing below, sort of the significantly below the national profile. In 2017, there was 18, maybe just a blip. But my point 
really of just picking that data because let's be honest, our ability to consume information and read over a period like that. Is there any evidence that by doing this, it is driving up school standards? Does this actually serve a purpose? And, and that often is that big challenge. Is it providing an ability for us to say they're good, they're bad, full stop? Or are they saying it's identifying they're bad, therefore there's going to be something that we can evidence has a positive impact and improve on it? And sometimes we could say at a very simplistic level, okay, well, I don't always agree, but hey, internationally, we know which are the high-performing school systems around the world. We might debate what the measure of high-performing is, and with the current mindset, we might say, actually, academic is not the sole measure on that, on that process. But what does it achieve? Well, if it signposts who to go talk to to learn more, then I guess that's a fair tick in the box. But if it's simply a case of those at the top can smile and say, we're doing a great job, and those at the bottom saying, well, we'd love to do that, but we can't afford to, or in our country, that's as good as we can do right now. I question its purpose. It's a little bit like in class, you know, if you want to pick the top three winners, well, highlight the top three, but you don't list those right at the bottom. You know, there's right. a kind of a, yeah. a shift. And, and I, again, I'm, I'm simplifying for the purpose of our conversation. You know, if we had a system in the UK, for example, we said, well, every school that performed below a certain baseline, the following year got an extra 20% funding so they could use it to recruit teachers and or extra resources to intervene. You'd say, okay, well, that helps. Although you'd have a, a bit of an up and down roller coaster. You'd have schools struggling, getting loads of money and extra resource, performing well, the funding stops and they slip back down again. But at least you'd have a path. But we don't really have that opportunity. Well, let's talk a little bit about what happens here in the United States, that when a school performs poorly, they get a lot of extra money to be successful but then when then they're in this perpetual getting money phase which actually because of covid has just kept everybody in those positions and nobody's really changed out of them because we haven't had test scores and all that kind of stuff which is what we typically used to measure but what happens is that if your school is a low performing school you're actually incentivized to be low performing so you can get the extra money so that you can then increase your scores, but if you increase your scores, then you're going to lose that money and not continue to get that. And so there's um, there's some challenges around that that principals that I've talked to are like, you know, yeah. if we do much better, then we're going to lose this money and then we're not going to be able to sustain it. And that's a very real issue. I think there's a, there's a number of, of things we have to kind of consider there, which is one of the biggest challenges we have in education around the world is that most of our educational decisions are often taken within political cycles. Governments want to spend new initiatives and they want to see the results before the next election. And that's not yeah. unique to any one country. And often decisions about interventions follow a similarly narrow focus. Whereas in reality, we know, and I'm going to use the transformative word, which you know way better than I do, but the transformative <laughs> word of, if we're going to invest in change in a school, it's rarely a one or two year fix. It's often, you've got to be thinking a five, 10 year plan. The same as the broader education system. Think of the time it takes a child to pass through the education system. We don't want quick change. We want long-term embedded and evidence change. So when we start thinking longer term, rather than this idea of, when you do badly, we'll give you some money. When you do well, we're going to penalize you and take it away again, which basically allows you to make short-term decisions, but never be able to spend on long-term investment because yep. you can never guarantee that continuity. 
What's far more meaningful is to think about what are the indicators that might vary the funding for different schools. So when we think about schools, so you know, I'll use obviously England as, as my home example. Um, do we say that every school gets the same amount of funding for every child across the country? Well, no, we, we provide a bit more funding for schools in London because the cost of recruiting and staff salaries is higher. And in the US, we could pick different states and the same applies in terms of the costs. Mm-hmm. But we also look at much broader measures. So we look at things like um, social deprivation. There's an index that's produced every five years for each region. And it looks at the levels of deprivation for the catchment for where your student cohort comes from and your funding, you get additional funding. We we look at the cohort that indicate things like they have English as an additional language and there's additional funding to support those. There's funding for children with special educational needs. And again, there's an additional top up there to provide those extra supporting interventions. And all those things allow schools based on their area and their cohort, which let's be honest, is unlikely to magically change within a year or two. It'd be a very gradual change in terms of intake of students to have funding to make more long term interventions, recruit specialist staff that can provide that additional wraparound care or support or have extra assistance in the classroom to support and nurture with young people and that for me is more sustainable I think we'd probably say if we went into most schools around the world schools would say well these systems are great but there's still not enough money in the pot you know there's still the pressures but if I flip and put my hat on from a government perspective we can't always say the reason the school's not performing well is because it doesn't have enough money it's probably likely it's a factor but with the best will in the world bad leaders can spend a lot of money and still not achieve outcome. That's right. And, and good very leaders true. sometimes manage to achieve amazing things with very limited resources. So money alone is not the fix. It's also about the strategic approach, the, the leadership style of the school, the structures, the prioritization. And in some regard, we're maybe the slightly more positive part of this conversation. We're starting to mitigate that more because compared to 10 years ago, we've got way more opportunity to share resources, mm-hmm. best practice, guidance, and all the rest of it that feeds into it. And that, to me, is far more transformative than getting a score on the door at the end of the year and saying I'm better or worse than the school down the road. Well, and here's an, another wrinkle to that, is that each school has its own culture and systems and structures that help it be successful or not. And so you can't just copy what somebody else does and say this is going to work now at my school because it, it's just You've not possible. Adapt. So this Absolutely. is this is I think the biggest challenge that we face is, you know, you could say all right because we saw that this particular school did well, every school needs to follow this example and do these same kinds of things. But you can't say that, and no. and you can't get that same success from the same school or from a different school using the same practices. And so that really complicates, but it doesn't make it impossible. But it helps it helps you say what are the things that really matter in making improvement and growth for our students. I think this is the point where we just have to, and we've seen it particularly the last couple of years, we just actually have to respect first and trust our school leaders. Yeah. Because we saw a in nation around nation around the world, a prescriptive handbook in a frankly two sides of paper. Uh, this is what you should do for remote learning. And that exact model was, well, that depends surely on the digital skills of your teacher, your students, and more importantly, the cohort of learners as to whether having a a fully 
you know, synchronous day prescribed on Teams or Zoom all day long was even closely practical. There were many cohorts where 15 minutes of attention span followed by some project work was far more appropriate. And again, you couldn't follow this one, everybody follow this mandate. But I do think lots of these things come back to who knows our learners best. Do we trust our teachers? They've trained, they've qualified, they give up their time to support these young people. And in a way, we say, you see this child every day, you observe what they know, you do those quick assessments to make sure that they're on track and understanding things. And then at the end of it, we kind of say, but we don't trust your judgment. So we'll get somebody else to tell us how well they've done. And, and it's a little bit like, um, it's a bit like, you know, in many other professions, that would be seen as hugely disrespectful. Now, you've got to have checks and balance in any system. I'm not for a moment suggesting that autonomy is such that you just leave a school to it and never have any kind of checks and balances or, you know, doing, as we try and do, we often benchmark between schools where we'll cross teachers will move between different schools and do a quick dip and benchmark test on assessed scores to make sure that we're following similar standards and approaches. But we seem to have moved away to the point of saying, well, no, that, that approach of teacher assessment isn't appropriate. Of course, until last year, when because of the pandemic in the UK, we, the exams process was disrupted. And then magically we said, actually, teacher assess grades, yes, they're perfectly reasonable. We'll use those for this year's national results. But then still the government position is we've done teacher assess grades. They were probably overly generous the sooner we get back to external exams now were they overly generous were teachers just giving all their children extra marks i don't believe so most teachers are very professional in their approach or was it perhaps that measuring a child's knowledge skills acquisition progress during the last couple of years was actually a fairer measure by observing them over the two years than sticking them with a test paper for two hours and expecting them to regurgitate as much as they could I would argue if you put five children into an exam hall ready to take a, a formal exam, for all those that will do well, there'll be children that are nervous, that underperform, will be stressed or on the day just aren't perfect. But actually that levels out when you're doing assessment in the classroom. So mm. for me, that's why I think an external validation test is fine, but it shouldn't be that's your success or fail. It should be just but one part of that overall journey. Yeah, and I, I agree with that, and I think that's important, and I think that it needs to be a a much smaller part than we give emphasis to it now. So here in the United States, at, at the time we're recording this, a lot of kids are graduating, and I've t been talking to a lot of parents about their kids' high school journeys, and a lot of parents have said, oh, because of these last two years, we just want to make sure that he get or she gets that diploma that says that they completed high school and we're willing to do whatever needs to be done to get that to happen. We'll bug the teachers to make sure their grades are up high enough. We'll uh, help them as much as we can with homework, sometimes even doing their schoolwork for them to ensure that they get what they need to do to, to get that diploma. Here in the United States, that diploma is is increasingly less valuable, but still essential for almost every job that is mm -hmm. out there. And if you don't have it, then you then have to get a GED, which is a, I don't remember what it stands for, but it's basically a way to get a high school diploma without getting the high school diploma. You basically have to take a test, which is even more challenging for someone who hasn't been successful in school and on their assessments. 
and there there really isn't an alternate path there for kids who who have been struggling and so it's been really fascinating to hear how much emphasis has been put on just doing whatever they can to make sure those kids get their diplomas when you know it's it's becoming less and less valuable because fewer and fewer jobs um are 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 accepting that as a highest level of, of education it's a reflector of the system i mean sometimes you just pause and you kind of try and zoom out a little bit for that helicopter view and you think if we're really as a nation or internationally trying to convince ourselves that the best way to measure someone's knowledge and progress over a couple of years is to take a test at the end of it why is it when we go into the workplace that we're appraised each year on our performance and not asked to sit down and take a test? Mm -hmm. We don't consider it an appropriate measure in exclusivity <laughs> alone once we leave the education system. So again, it's about finding those that sweet spot. And of course, what happens, like you say, is if we're taking a test, that doesn't change and fundamentally that the, the content and the assessment process hasn't changed for years, then it's not a surprise that it becomes less and less relevant to the workplace. And often when we look in the workplace, we now see that often um, in the UK, we have an apprenticeship scheme where often a student can leave school and rather than going to college, um, they can go into the workplace, work for three years, acquiring skills and qualifications whilst at work. And at the end of the three years, they're further up the pathway than the child that chose to go to college for three years, get their qualification and then join the business. And suddenly we're not starting to see why is that? Well, actually, the skills that we're acquiring in the workplace or those additional broader skills, those cognitive skills, social emotional skills, they're actually the things that we're starting to put more weight on in the workplace, the things that are actually more important about an individual's ability to be successful. It doesn't diminish the fact we all need to be literate and numerate, and we all need to have that baseline of understanding. And of course in school, developmentally, we learn all those social skills and the sharing and the team building and working all the other bits. But it's about the fact that surely we need to keep changing that measure to reflect what are now the important skills. I and mean, it's doubly hard because actually, unless you've got a crystal ball, none of us can know for sure what the skills are that are needed for the workplace in 10 years from now. Exactly. We're, we're just following a trajectory and trying to second guess what we think is most important. You know, And I think that's kind of where, for me, it's we're just too rigid. Um, one of the things I referenced earlier on about that um, test talks Sugar Mitra was doing, and he was referring to the, the English education system. And, you know, we've got a fair bit of history in England and some of our earlier, yeah. uh, some of our earlier history <laughs> is, um, is less popular than others. But like all countries, you know, we follow our history back. But was talking about the UK and the British education system back over the last century and a half and that it was intended that it was a very fixed curriculum about those writing skills, reading skills and numeracy, so that anybody who was educated across the British Empire could be picked up and dropped in another part of the British Empire and would have the skills to contribute. And we think about sitting in offices, the ledger writing, the kind of key skills. And that system kind of, because it was consistent and could be applied anywhere, that standard made it really easy to measure and maintain. And in many ways, we've never broken out of that mindset of actually consistency and ease of measure somehow trumps the real breadth and accuracy and effectiveness of the measure because it would just get a bit too complicated. So we've gone for the simple approach, even though it's fundamentally flawed. Well, and the other part of that is that those 
key skills have grown over time when if we just kept them at that minimum level, I think that would actually be a lot better. And so one of the things that I say all the time is no matter what a kid, a kid needs to be able to read. And if they can read, then they can do anything else in the world. Now, if that's all we do in education, we've actually done a great service to that child and helped them be able to access any kind of text that they come across. And I think that's really valuable. So if we just stop there, that would be that would be sufficient for a very basic level of education. Now, if we add in numeracy and some math skills, then that is even better because then yep. they can they can do more and be better. But the problem is, is that we kept saying, well, you know, we probably should add on chemistry and biology <laughs> and and yep. integrated sciences and earth sciences and and all these different things that maybe are beneficial for everybody to have a cursory knowledge of but they certainly aren't necessary for everybody to have a cursory knowledge of even uh, though that's really nice to have it's not the thing that when when you talked before about what is it that we can see about the future well one thing we need to be everybody's going to need to be able to do is to learn what what has changed and how to adapt to that and really to me that becomes the ultimate skill learning and adapting to the change makes you ready for anything and if nothing changes then you're good for what you've been able to do up to that point but but that's a completely different way of assessing whether or not kids are learning is measuring learnability and adaptability there's an interesting built around that and i absolutely support your view in terms of those core building blocks and the more you try and expand it the more unrealistic and unattainable it becomes to have value and um, building on that PISA type measure of high performing school systems. Michael Stevenson, who's at the OECD, has done some great work and he's been working on with the Center for Strategic Education on a model for education for human flourishing, which immediately resonates a bit more with me. But what was interesting, apart from there, what we're going to measure, some of the key skills that they identified as high performing were built around what you said, adaptive problem solving, ethical decision making. And the one that really resonated with me, aesthetic perception which sounds a bit grand but when we think about those key building blocks you know we all get the problem solving and making the right ethical decisions but actually things like why do we look at a painting and actually go wow or a view that actual sense of how do we put things in context appreciate what's amazing around us and, and share that kind of broader measure and i think one of the challenges is we've got this focused academic measure and what we're really now building on is much more of this actually the knowledge gives you part of the jigsaw puzzle but if you've got the skills to inquire and challenge and you've got the critical thinking to actually think is that right is that appropriate what more do i need to do to validate it and at the same time in terms of the broader human being the person who actually enjoys learning enjoys education that miss missing little bit of magic pixie dust you need to sprinkle on it is that aesthetic appreciation what makes you go wow that's an amazing book wow look at that view that painting's amazing that musical performance was so overwhelming there's there's another element which is about we actually need to make sure that part of what we do at the end of the education journey at school is not that everybody's exhausted and have completed the task to get that certificate to get them to the next stage but actually leaves valuing the experience yeah 
And, and that's a really difficult one. I mean, how you measure that? Well, there must be, well, I'm sure there's plenty smarter people than me. I don't know. But internally within your own school, your school leadership get a real good sense of the vision and values of, of what the school does. But when you start trying to measure it and encapsulate that, but actually I, I, I would hold that most parents would, if you could bottle it and you could measure it, I'm sure most parents would say, you know what, if my child is going to leave their education with a real passion and love and 10 plus happy years of learning, I'd sacrifice a grade over a child that never wants to do that ever again, but just got that extra point on their grade. Yeah. Now, maybe that's simplistic, but that's kind of part of, we have an obligation looking forward to think about the bigger, not just to focus on the narrow. Yeah, absolutely. So in closing, Al, what is one thing that you would suggest to add, change, or remove from our current testing situation? What would you say, if we could do nothing else, what would be the one thing you say we do? Well, the most important thing is test less. The second thing, and again, not particularly um, grand or surprising after our conversation, is don't make the test the 100% of the assessment. Trust teachers would be absolutely there. And then I think you've made a really re relevant point. And it's very easy with some of my comments to want to keep adding much more broader measures in. But actually, the best effective way of testing, because you've got to do some, is to keep it really narrow on the core skills so that mm -hmm. you're not trying to measure too many things and too much time is training for the test. Focus on those key skills that are the facilitators to self-empower a young person to do the next step themselves and have more time to broaden the, the curriculum. In my role leading uh, multi-academy trust here in the UK, I absolutely say, I think one of our core measures of success is the breadth of curriculum choices we offer because then we're bound to provide more that will suit across our full cohort. Whereas conversely, the government pressure has been to narrow and narrow and narrow, focus on those core traditional topics, which marginalizes and doesn't play to the strengths of all of our learners, particularly around the arts and humanities. Yeah, absolutely. I think the question that I would ask a teacher, if, if a teacher was listening to this and I'm talking to principals, go ask your teachers this, what is how can you narrow down everything that kids are supposed to learn in the year in your course or in the semester? How can you narrow that down to one, maybe two questions to see if they really got it? In my English language arts courses that I taught, my question was, are you a better communicator than you were before? And how do we know? And if you can be a better communicator because of an English language arts class, then I think that I've met my goal. You know, middle and high school language arts, for example, are not about learning how to read. They're more about learning how to think, reason, and communicate. And so to be an effective communicator, you have to be able to think and reason. And then you also have to be well-read. So all of those things build into that effective communication. And that's where I would narrow that down as an example. But take that for any class. Chemistry, math, doesn't matter ask that one simple question, what could, how could you know that they learned what they were supposed to in just one question? I think that would make a big difference as well. 
I like that. There's that kind of three, two, one model, three things you've learned, two things that you'd like to follow up or find more about one thing that you didn't understand or that kind of yeah. different people phrase it different ways, but, sure. but yeah, you're right. The less questions, the better, I suppose. So my example is probably not as, not as succinct, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> you're uh, lucky I didn't say that the 50, 49, 48 system would have been even right. more onerous. <laughs> yeah. Well, Al, this is, this is great talking to you. I appreciate it. Everybody. Um, if you want to learn more about Al, you can get his, uh, book my secret ed tech diary which is a great book um, and then you can check him out at al kingsley a-l-k-i-n-g-s-l-e-y.com for more information al thanks so much for being part of transformative principle today my pleasure always happy to chat with you do you want to simplify your school's technology save teachers time improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.